You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with breaking news of the fight against the COVID pandemic. After a federal panel recommended that the U.S. resume use of the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the CDC officially lifted the pause just minutes ago. That panel is also advising the company to add a warning label about the risk of blood clots, which have been, I'll remind you, exceedingly rare. It comes after President Biden surpassed his goal of vaccinating 200 million Americans, reaching that milestone well before his 100th day in office, which comes next week. But today marks the anniversary of another moment in COVID history, one that will forever define the former president's legacy for generations to come. Now, it is still hard to believe that this really happened one year ago today. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Needless to say, anyone over the age of six with a modicum of common sense knows that could kill you. You do not drink bleach. But Trump's brand of thinking has prevailed among many Republicans, even after the arrival of the vaccine. Take Senator Ron Johnson, for example. No, please take him. In a radio interview yesterday, he needlessly stoked fear of the vaccine and actively discouraged mass immunization. The science tells us that vaccines are 95% effective. So if you have a vaccine, quite honestly, what do you care if your neighbor has one or not? Why is this big push to make sure everybody gets a vaccine and, and it, to the point where you better impose it? You're going to shame people. You're going you're to force them to carry a card to prove that they've been vaccinated so they can participate in society. Um, I, I'm, I'm getting highly suspicious of what's happening here. I mean, why vaccinate everybody for polio? I mean, ugh. Well, to answer Ron Johnson's frankly dumb question, the vast majority of Americans need to be vaccinated for this country to reach herd immunity, which is the only way to end the pandemic. And I mean real, actual herd immunity, not the kind that Trump and his administration seem to be pushing without overtly admitting it by exposing more and more people to COVID at their super spreader events. Here's how Dr. Anthony Fauci responded to Johnson today. Well, there's a pretty good reason we have 567,000 people who've died so far in this country from this disease. That is a really, really good reason to get people vaccinated with a vaccine that you've shown is highly efficacious and quite safe. Yet Republicans are the most vaccine resistant of any demographic group thanks to the former president who was unwilling to promote it to his supporters. According to Politico, even Trump's former aides believe his record on the vaccine was a failure. 
It's no coincidence that according to an analysis by The New York Times, those anti-vaxxers are most concentrated in the counties that Trump won in 2020. In fact, Republicans today are eight times more likely than Democrats to say they'll likely never get vaccinated. That's 43 percent of Republicans, according to a recent Monmouth poll. Now, the vaccine resistant Trump crowd is becoming a problem for the rest of us. That's because the country is fast approaching a tipping point when vaccine hesitancy will become the biggest hurdle to achieving herd immunity. It raises the scary prospect that we may be stuck living alongside a block of the population that remains permanently vulnerable to COVID. That means the virus will still have the opportunity to spread and to mutate. And the more the virus mutates, the faster that we'll have to roll out new vaccines to outrun the variants. So after a while, so-called vaccine hesitancy might be better described as reckless endangerment. And given the threat that those people represent to the community at large, when does their negligence become a liability? Joining me now is Dr. Vin Gupta, critical care pulmonologist, and Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large for The Bulwark and an MSNBC columnist. And, you know, Dr. Gupta, this is the thing that scares me, that we'll be never out of the pandemic because you'll have a good, you know, 25, 30, maybe even 40 percent of the population because they are of a certain ideology that refuse to get vaccinated, refuse to wear masks, refuse to do anything to stop COVID, and then COVID mutates. And then we had sort of the new alien from aliens. Is that what we're looking at? Very possibly. Good evening, Joy. Very possibly. Scarcity and vulnerability have been sort of the overarching messages of the last three months of the vaccination campaign and messaging. These are vaccines that are going to keep you out of the hospital to a vulnerable population. And oh, by the way, it's scarce. So line up the second you get it and get the first vaccine available. But now we're battling perception versus reality. And the reality here is that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is extremely effective, almost as effective uh, as, as Pfizer and Moderna, based on how you define effectiveness, nearly 100 percent, in my view, keeps out of the hospital. But the perception here is the thing that we really need to be honest about. Uh, we know these rare side effects afflicting maybe uh, younger middle-aged women are exceptionally rare. But, Joy, that's not the perception out there. I've yeah. talked to young people across the country that's not how they think of it. They think their individual risk is far greater. And so we can constantly beat a drum and say, yes, your risk is exceptionally low, but they do not perceive it that way, which is why I'll say there's going to be some brand consumerism at play here where people recognize there's a vaccine glut, not uh, not a scarcity. And if this is the rate limiting step to reach people, well, I'm scared about the clot, then we need to pivot. We need to say, well, here's Moderna or Pfizer and individual level guidance to these uh, to, to people that are scared about this specific issue is going to be vital to understand their fears and address them head on. I mean, this this is the problem. So we now have um, Charlie. It is moms with kids who are now right. among sort of the biggest groups of people who are refusing to get vaccinated. That's scary because they also have kids, kids that they're responsible for. Um, and you also have people who are not only scaring people about Johnson and Johnson, which unfortunately that's the vaccine that's easiest to give to rural populations. Right. It doesn't have to be really cold. You can actually use it for younger people who may not come back for their second vaccine. So it's unfortunate that you have this one vaccine that now has a bad rep when it's actually very efficacious, particularly for younger and harder to reach populations. But let me play someone you know very well. This is what Ron Johnson is supposedly, you know, responsible public official did on the radio. Um, 
he, he played, oh, well, I don't, I don't have it to play, but he basically went on the radio and it. said, why should anybody get vaccinated? Why should, you know, why, why not? Why do you have to get vaccinated? Why do you care if your neighbor does? Polio vaccine. Why not vaccine? I mean, can you explain what is going on? He's still doubling down on saying that this is a good idea for him to push that kind of anti-vax idea. No, I can't really explain it. I mean, uh, Ron Johnson has become a Vesuvius of wrongness here. And you use the term reckless endangerment. And and that's really what it amounts to when you think about it. I mean, you have and, and it's an interesting bookend with what happened a year ago today, the the ignorance, the recklessness, the disregard for science and the and the lack of human compassion, because he asked the question, why should you care if your neighbor gets vaccinated? <laughs> Well, because in our society, we care about our neighbors. We care that our neighbors don't get sick, that they don't die, that they don't infect our other neighbors. This is why we are doing this. This is how we get back to life. This is how we beat the pandemic, by getting to herd immunity. And here you have uh, Ron Johnson in that whole interview putting on this tinfoil hat of conspiracy. I'm very, very suspicious and I don't want to give up freedom What a distortion of the idea of freedom that we don't care about the health and safety of our neighbors. But as you point out, comments like this will simply just add to the resistance and the denialism about the vaccination. And, you know, I mean, that we are still having public officials behaving this way after 570,000 Americans have died is stunning to me. Yeah. And this is what he said. It's a, it's a legitimate question as to whether people at very low risk of suffering serious illness from COVID should be encouraged to take a vaccine that's being administered under emergency, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been fully tested. It's been fully approved. Are, are you sure. I, 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 I'm going to presume he's not an idiot. Uh, I, I, let me. Well, maybe I shouldn't presume that. I just want to play for our audience just to give you just to let's get back to reality. This is how scary COVID is. COVID in India is out of control. Sky News did a piece on it. Let's play a little bit of it. The emergency room of one of Delhi's biggest hospitals. They're constantly having to move out the dead to make way for more. And most of those in this room are dying and they haven't been admitted yet to the hospital. The doctors are simply overwhelmed, scrambling for oxygen and reduced to begging for help on social media. India set a worldwide record nobody wants. For a second day running, it topped the number of global daily coronavirus cases. They're shocked and ashamed at how the country's healthcare system is all but breaking. This is like our dim future. I mean, in Brazil, they're running out of intubation drugs. so They're having to intubate people without sedatives, which is terrifying. Dr. Gupta, is this what we now need to move to, is to, to, to show people this horrifying potential truth if we don't get this damn thing under control? Yes, Joy, I'm glad you uh, thank you for showing that clip. I, I, I don't think people realize because with the warm weather is here, there's that there is a, could be a false illusion of normalcy by July 4th. We're not really normal. 50 to 60 percent of the population may have received the vaccine. The rest, for whatever reason, has yet to, uh, will choose not to or is not yet eligible. That's a very dangerous situation, Joy, because you know what happens come the fall, winter, when respiratory viruses like to spread again, they like cold, dry air. That's when we'll see what's happening right now in India and Brazil. That's when we could potentially see that, what, in this case, what, fourth, fifth surge. That's what we, we do not want to fall into a false sense of complacency with vaccines available, warm weather on the horizon, that all is well. So absolutely, you're correct. And if I can quickly say this notion, I know we talk about it as vaccine passports. 
But I talk to uh, I've talked to small business organizations all the time. They are they're crushed under the weight of the mitigation efforts we have in place for them right now. Distancing, indoor capacity limits. You know the quickest way to normalize yeah. their operations to 100 percent. It's actually showing them proof of vaccine. It's allowing normalcy to happen through normalizing the concept of vaccine proof, just like colleges and universities, by the way. Yes. Exactly. And Charlie, you know, we know some of talk yeah. radio, you and I have both been in the talk radio business. Yeah. A lot of it is performative. This woman who has this show, it's, it's a performance right. to some extent. But at, at a certain point, these are the people who have influence. And if this woman who has this show and pe- are inviting people on like Ron Johnson to basically lie about vaccination and make up crazy conspiracy theories, do you have a, an idea of how we can get to those people? Because at a certain point, they're threatening all of our health and all of our lives. Well, see, that's the problem is that there is that we have created this alternative reality silo and that you have uh, talk show hosts like uh, like Vicky McKenna, who was the, the host of that show, who's pushing Ron Johnson to embrace these various conspiracy theories. And you have to find a way to break through. And so what's going to have to happen is that other trusted voices in places like Wisconsin need to step up and say, whoa, no, this is wrong. What Ron Johnson is saying is incorrect. Um, young people are still vulnerable. Um, we are not through this. Um, It is not a violation of your freedom that you have to have a certification of a vaccine. Uh, You know, has he been around parents of of school age children? You know uh, what what colleges are doing? You know, in order to to, to go to school, any public school in the state of Wisconsin, anywhere in the country, you have to have all kinds of vaccinations. It's this weird tribalism that has taken place, tribalism compounded by this recklessness and I was as I was listening to, to, to Johnson, I'm thinking, you know what, um, the Republican Party's problem is no longer just Donald Trump. It's all that he has unleashed and this legacy of anti-silence, anti-science yeah. recklessness that you're still hearing from people like Ron Johnson. It's dangerous. And no one has the right to give someone else COVID. Nope. COVID can kill people. You do not have the right to spread a deadly disease. That is not liberty. Not that is no. reckless endangerment. Uh, Dr. Vin Gupta, Charlie Sykes, thank you both very much. Have a great weekend. Up next on The Readout, new momentum for police reform. Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, joins me next. Plus. You were told that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. And the truth of the matter is, that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. The remarkable work of the prosecution dream team in the Derek Chauvin murder trial and how they managed to crack the blue wall of silence. Plus, what you might have missed in a bananas week in politics, including Ted Cancun Cruz lying about Supreme Court packing and Josh Hawley voting against an anti-Asian hate crimes bill. The readout continues after this. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. 
conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute, and craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. The prosecution of Derek Chauvin was unique from the very start when Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz announced the county prosecutor would not take the lead in the prosecutions related to the killing of George Floyd. It was an extremely rare move that followed a flood of criticism from those who believed the county prosecutor, Hennepin, Hennepin County attorney Mike Freeman, was part of the broken system. And so in came Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, a civil rights attorney and former congressman who has been in this fight for almost his entire career. Now, you didn't often see Ellison in the courtroom. You didn't hear from him either. But there he was, most days, inside the courtroom, his fingerprints all over the prosecution, from weighing in on jury selection to preparing witnesses, even inviting Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, to join the team's daily meetings, knowing that the case wasn't a fight just for the Floyd family, but for all the black families who lost loved ones and never got a day in court. This is what Ellison, who called the prosecution a team of all Michael Jordans, had to say about his pivotal victory. I would not call today's verdict justice, however, because justice implies true restoration. But it is accountability, which is the first step towards justice. Now, of course, this seemed like an open and shut case with evidence that literally included a video showing the murder. But we also know that the justice system is tilted against black people and by design. The prosecutors knew exactly what they were up against, laying out a case that will surely be studied, analyzed and emulated for decades to come. With the very impactful and memorable Jerry Blackwell reminding jurors in his very last line that it wasn't George Floyd's heart that killed him. It was his killers. You were told, um, for example, that Mr. Floyd died that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. You heard that testimony. And the truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. Joining me now is Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor and a former federal prosecutor, and Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation. And I just want to take a moment just to talk about this team, Paul. Um, I, I, I sort of was semi-obsessed with Mr. Blackwell, Prosecutor Blackwell, who did this for free, by the way. Um, he's a beekeeper, which is my favorite piece of uh, news about him. Uh, and just a little note about him. Last June, Blackwell, who's actually a defense attorney, um, won a posthumous pardon for Max Mason, a black circus worker who was wrongly convicted of rape in 1920, months after three of his colleagues were lynched as a result of the false accusations. Mason was wrongly convicted in the aftermath of the public lynching of these three African-American colleagues in Duluth, despite the lack of physical evidence and faulty ID. Um, he also is, you know, licensed in multiple states and in front of the Supreme Court. Like, this was a great guy, but he was just one of many. These were all really incredible prosecutors who knew how to tell a story, to be simple. I mean, you, give me your assessment of this team. Hey, Joy, this prosecution will be studied as a playbook for how to convict a police officer. They responded to the concern that some jurors might have had about compliance, that if Mr. Floyd had just gotten into the squad car, he would still be alive. They answered that with eyewitnesses and videotape. It certainly helped that they sponsored a parade of good cops to contrast with the bad cop who was on trial. 
Yeah. And, you know, Ellie, and you're you're a defense attorney. So but this is a chance for you to rarely maybe praise prosecutors in this case, because what you had was this combination of really good prosecutors, really good witnesses. I mean, the witnesses were excellent. They were properly prepared. They were compelling, but also cops. Because you don't see cops testify against other cops. There, I'm thinking about this Buffalo police officer who tried to intervene when one of the fellow officers committed police brutality, and she ended up losing her pension. She just got it back. That's normally the attitude that you think police have is don't get involved. What do you make of the police involvement in terms of this conviction? Well, it goes to the whole playbook, right? And this is why this is my problem with with how this trial went down. It was a great victory, but this playbook is not repeatable. Right. Like justice requires repetition. I got to know. You know, we talk about you were talking about my kids online. Like, you know, my kid knows that if he misses his bath, there is going to be justice in that that switch is not coming in 20 minutes. Like he knows that it happens every night with this situation. We had to bring we had to bring so much to bear to get this one cop convicted of this one murder. I don't know that what Ellison put together is repeatable because let, let's give Ellison all credit here. It's like Ellison looked at like Marsha Clark and Chris Darden and was like, I ain't going out like that. Right. But he just, he just was not, gonna, that's not how he brought the A team, the B team, the C team. As you pointed out, he brought in defense attorneys. He had Neil Katyal, who was a former yeah. acting solicitor general of the United States to like be working on appeals issues. So like they brought everything to bear. Are they going to do that for Dante? Right. Is that what's going to happen um, with with uh, Micaiah Bryant's uh, case? Is it going to happen over and over and over again? Does it need to happen over and over and over again to, ha- to have bring these cops accountable? Because if we if this is what it takes, if this is the mountain that we have to climb to get one level of accountability, I just don't know how repeatable that is. Hey, Paul, it's, it's an excellent question, because I wonder, I mean, you, you, you even had, you know, Gwen Carr. Is that going to happen even for the other three cops? Right. So now you have another prosecution. There's a sentencing that's going to happen in June. Then those cops got to make some decisions. If they decide to go to trial in August, can this even be repeated for them, for their trials? So, Joy, Chauvin's defense went old school. They tried to put the victim, George Floyd, on trial. That was an epic fail. The prosecutors were proactive. So we saw a video of Mr. Floyd joking around in the store, and they put on eyewitnesses who testified very emotionally about Mr. Floyd's agonizing death. They had Mr. Floyd's partner talk about their shared struggle with addiction in a way that really evoked sympathy. It's a shame that in 2021, black victims of police violence still have to be humanized. But that's what it takes to hold officers accountable. And I think that's a lesson that will apply in many other prosecutions. Well, it, it will. But I think, Ellie, you make a very good point that it's, it's likely that the result won't be won't be this. Right. Because, it, you know, the other cases they could theoretically plead out. And these other cases that you're talking about, Micaiah Bryant, et cetera, are cases of split second decision, which jurors normally like to side with cops on. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the reality is that George Floyd, unfortunately, died over an agonizing long period of time, way, way much, you know, so long that people could really kind of get into his brain and get into his agony. What happens to most of us, what happens most of the times when cops kill black people is that that agony happens too quickly for the camera to pick it up. 
And and I think that's you know when you when you think about Dante Wright, we didn't get to see his face for 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 ten minutes as he cried out in pain and hoping that he would somehow live. We didn't get to see that because it happened so quick. Um, and 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 that when when you don't have, I hate to say it like this, but it's like when you don't have black plane on display, when when they haven't ripped it out of us like that then it's easier for the criminal justice system, the predominantly white criminal justice system, to just ignore it. And that's what and I fear will, will happen. Yeah, and, you know, Jason Johnson made this point, and I think it is, it is one that we have to grapple with, Paul, that, you know, it's easy to throw Derek Chauvin uh, overboard and say, that's the bad cop, all the rest of them are good cops, and, and just sort of brush off all of these other cases. I already saw the yeah buts with when it was Micaiah Bryant. The yeah buts were already there with Dante Wright. The same people who sort of pretended that they were just so aggrieved for George Floyd were very quick to say, yeah, but the mother black people deserve to die. So I, I do worry that this will become the case that is sort of the exception that re- reintroduces the rule that 99 percent of police are just going to get away with killing black people going forward. Yeah, I think that's right, Joy. But I think that the forthcoming prosecution of the three officers for aiding and abetting Chauvin could impact policing even more than Chauvin's conviction. Too often, when officers see another officer crossing the line, they don't stop him. Cops enforce the law against black and brown people, but not against their fellow officers. If these three officers are convicted, they face the same 40-year sentence as Chauvin. That would send a strong message to other officers about the duty to intervene when they see a cop abusing his or her badge. Yeah. That would be a big deal. Uh, we will definitely keep an eye on it. Paul Butler, Ellie Mustal. See, I wasn't going to ask you anything about your kids, but you you brought them up. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to tweet about that later because that is my favorite thing about you. Your stories about your kids are amazing. Have a great weekend, guys. All right, still ahead. Grieving mothers are generating momentum in the push for police accountability. And we will talk with one of them next. Stay with us. I met Gwen Carr. It was in Baltimore at an event Reverend Al Sharpton held supporting the family of Freddie Gray, who was killed by police who tossed him unshackled into the back of a police van after he committed the crime of looking at cops the wrong way. Carr, who has become a senior member of a sorority that no one ever wanted to join, these mothers of the dead, black children, the mothers of the movement, most of whose sons and daughters died at the hands of police or wannabes. Well, Carr is the mother of Eric Garner, whose final desperate words before police choked him to death in Staten Island, New York, on July 17, 2014, were also the last desperate words of George Floyd in Minnesota last on May 24th. I can't breathe. So she has been there for George Floyd's family, too. Now, I've spent a lot of my time as a journalist talking to grieving mothers who become known in a sort of journalistic shorthand as the mother of, the mother of Trayvon Martin, the mother of Tamir Rice, the mother of Walter Scott, the mother of Michael Brown or Ramarley Graham or Sandra Bland or Breonna Taylor, the mother of Dante Wright. And people ask me sometimes if we black journalists take these stories personally, and the answer is, Yeah, we do, because each of us knows that at any time, our husbands, our sons, our daughters could be the next Black Lives Matter hashtag just for running into the wrong cop on the wrong day in a car the cop thinks is 
too nice for a black person to be driving or the tent's too dark or really just for nothing at all. So, yeah, it's personal. When those guilty verdicts were read out by the judge against Derek Chauvin, something I haven't heard in more than a decade of doing this job, it was a profound moment, a fundamental change in more than a century of unrighted, officially sanctioned wrongs against black people. When George Floyd was dying, he called out for his mama, who, like George Floyd, is dead and gone. But the mamas left behind are speaking and crying out for justice. And joining me now is Gwen Carr. Um, and Ms. Carr, it's always a privilege to talk to you. And, and I just want to give you an opportunity, because you've been so supportive of George Floyd's family, to tell me how it felt when you heard the words guilty against Derek Chauvin. Well, um, well, thank you, Joy, for having me. But when I first heard it, I was home and watching the judge open the envelope. And when he started reading the charges, when he read the the most, you know, severe of the charges first, and it was guilty, I was I was just so elated. I was relieved because we never know how these cases are going to turn out. We have had so many disappointments. So I was just on edge. Although we all seen blatantly that George George Floyd was was murdered. He was suffering. The knee was on his neck for over nine minutes. But look at my son's death. They seen them choking him to death. And he was hollering, I can't breathe, 11 times. And the disconcerned officer still decided to take his life. Just like with George Floyd. He decided to take George's life, even though George begged for his life and pleaded for his mother. So yeah. I was really, really pleased. It was like mixed emotions, really. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you, and you, just the, 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 the connections that you have had to these tragedies, as you said, your son cried out, I can't breathe, as you said, 11 times. And there was no justice for you. You have a relationship to Lieutenant Karian Nazario, um, who knew Eric Garner, knew your son. Um, and then he gets pulled over and harassed and is now traumatized for what happened to him in Virginia. How yeah. how do you I mean, I, I know I've talked with you um, and, uh, you know, Katiadu Diallo, Amadou Diallo's mom. And we, we've, we've talked together about this. But share with us, how do you as a mom deal with the, the re-traumatization of each of these these deaths at the hands of police. You, you know, Joy, it's hard because every time you hear of another death, it just puts another hole in your heart. It's just like re-traumatizing uh, you again. Um, but the only thing that you can do is try to comfort these mothers, try to embrace and empower these mothers. And that's part of the therapy to try to get the mothers from doing something that could hurt themselves or doing something desperate we as mothers have to come together and we got to fight this thing. We have to get law and legislations on this. And I say, yeah. even when we get law, because I have had laws passed, but it's no good unless the laws are enforced. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. 
And you were part of the uh, the prosecution team uh, and you, you were helping uh, out. What did you do? What was your role in the in the George um, Floyd um, murder? I mean, the, the, the Chauvin trial. Oh, well, I've been there. We were actually in the courtroom. Uh, myself, uh, Reverend Sharpton, uh, Ray McGuire, who's running for mayor in New York. Uh, we were actually and oh, yeah, we had um, Governor uh, Patterson there also. And uh, we were there. We were analyzing what was going on at the time, you know, looking at the witnesses that was up there on the stand, talking to the family, listening to you know, what they had to say and they, and they had mixed emotions. Sometimes they were okay. And sometimes some of the, the family would just break down, just break yeah. down and cry. And I have seen you comfort uh, other families, including Freddie Gray's family. Um, and I just want to play for you. Blaine Alexander, one of our reporters spoke with some HBCU students about how this trial um, has, and the verdict impacted them. If, take a look at that for just a moment, please. So you were what, 13 years old? Right around 13 years old. Trayvon 12, Martin was yeah. killed. Yeah, so you've been watching a number of these trials almost in rapid succession your entire childhood. I'm identifying that because he looks like me. And then you keep going on. And as I age, so do the victims. You get Mike Brown, Eric Gardner, and as I get older, so do the victims. And, and again, it's this cycle of when am I next? We have to deal with the fact that after one killer is brought to what people will call justice, there is another police officer who murders a 15-year-old young girl that same day. Well, they sound like my kids. Um, and, and Ms. Carr, you know, and, and it, is, it is so unfortunate because you did not choose to be in this sorority of women, these mothers of the movement, and yet here you are. Um, and because people do look to you, um, um, because, you know, you, you have been so strong and so vocal, what should we say to our children about what the Derek Chauvin verdict means? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to our our kids? Well, it means that they made a just decision this time. But there are so many others out there who never got justice, who never got a day in court. And we have to say we still have to stay focused. We have to stay alert. We can't say that. Just because we got one guilty verdict, it's time to rest. There's no time to rest. We still have to stay on our P's and Q's. And as we speak now, uh, myself and members from the Arc of Justice is on our way to North Carolina for the other mm -hmm. murder from the son and the father in the car. Uh, myself and um, Kirsten John Foy is on our way down there now to the comfort the family. Gwen Carr, you are a great lady. Uh, you really, truly are. And I thank you. I, I feel very blessed that Rev Sharpton introduced me to you back in the uh, back a few years ago. And uh, God bless you. God bless you, ma'am. Have a wonderful weekend. So, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Gwen Carr is wonderful. We'll be back in a moment. Ted Cruz, perennial readout, absolute worst candidate, and occasionally senator from Texas when he's not running off to Cancun to abandon his constituents in their time of need, has apparently taken another vacation from reality in his ongoing quest to revise history, like when he pretended Donald Trump was his friend, despite Trump calling his wife ugly and saying his father killed JFK. Well, he had the temerity to say this about proposals from some Democratic lawmakers to expand the Supreme Court. You didn't see... Republicans, when we had control of the Senate, try to rig the game 
You didn't see us try to pack the court. Except that we totally did see you rig the game, Crocodile Cruz. Remember 2016? Republicans infamously refused to even consider Barack Obama's, President Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. And Cruz himself proposed blocking any potential Hillary Clinton nominees indefinitely if she became president for years, saying there was a long historical precedent for a court with fewer than nine justices. Of course, Lion Ted only said that when he thought the guy who gave him that nickname was going to lose. But wait, there's more. The senator, who apparently every other member of Congress hates, according to John Boehner, also led the charge to put Amy Coney Barrett on the court in an election year, literally weeks before the election, despite arguing the actual opposite in 2016. He also argued it was necessary to confirm her to resolve any cases involving the election. With me now are Juanita Tolliver, Democratic strategist and MSNBC political analyst, and Tiffany Cross, host of MSNBC's The Cross Connection. Uh, Juanita, first to you, what do you think of Ted Cruz's reasoning? I put that in scare quotes. I mean, Joe is what my middle school teachers would call a bold-faced lie. He's out here lying through his teeth trying to revise the reality that the GOP invented the playbook for packing the courts. And now they're trying to backtrack on that. And I think everybody sees through that for what it is because he got trolled online for it. And that's not going to stop. What else is out here right now, though, is the fact that Democrats are being called upon to match the same energy that the GOP had back in 2016, back in 2020, when they were limiting the court, obstructing nominees and then rushing nominees. And so I think we're going to see more progressives push for Democrats to match that energy, to expand the course, especially with the decisions that they're making. We know these decisions will have generations long impact. And I think seeing the, the decision today about allowing minors to be subjected to life imprisonment without parole, one could argue that decision only came down because Comey Barrett and because Kavanaugh are in the court. And so I think yeah. we're going to see pressure mount for Democrats to respond to that. And how ironic uh, that Kavanaugh, who wanted people to not judge what he was doing in high school, which allegedly was involving uh, sexually harassing and maybe worse, uh, a fellow student. Um, you know, Tiffany, speaking of senators who are terrible, Josh Hawley decided that the anti-Asian uh, hate crimes bill was no bueno. Your thoughts? Well, he, he was the only one. Yeah, exactly. It's sad that he was the only, the sole no vote on this uh, anti-hate bill. And let me just say, Joy, we're going to be talking to Senator Maisie Hirono tomorrow on the Cross Connection. So I'm really excited to hear her thoughts. Um, but, you know, it's really interesting that this uh, violent insurrectionist sympathizer does not think that this bill uh, rises to the occasion to protect the, the uh, AAPI uh, community from the rise in hate crimes that we've seen. I just want to really quickly say, though, about the Supreme Court, it's important to remember that um, um, the Mexican vacation spot expert Ted Cruz only weighed in on this because um, Senator Ed Markey and uh, Congressman Gerald Nadler introduced a bill to expand the courts. And that's really important, Joy, as you know, because think about how many cases could be landing in the Supreme Court. We've got voting rights. We've got policing issues, the ability for presidents yep. to be able to block people on Twitter. So all of these things matter happening on Capitol Hill right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's move along to LeBron James, who uh, he 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 got Donald Trump to come out of hiding and attack him, trying to say that LeBron James is being racist and divisive, which is funny coming from uh, the man that uh, LeBron famously called you bum, uh, because he tweeted about people being killed by police. He, like every other human being, particularly African-Americans in the country, feel like maybe that shouldn't be done. Uh, what do you make of the attempts to try to come for LeBron, who has actually become heroic in terms of voting rights, et cetera? Juanita, your thoughts? 
who cares what Trump has to say? He is a non-factor in all of this. And honestly, what LeBron was reflecting was the deep pain, the deep frustration, the deep anger that a lot of people are experiencing right now, especially when black people are being killed by police every day. So continue to dismiss Trump as the bum that he is, because that's all that's happening. It's just noise that doesn't need any attention. Speaking of bums, uh, Matt Gates uh, begging for money. He says he wants to run some ads to try to help himself. There's an interesting piece in ProPublica that talks about the fact that all of these far right figures like Matt Gates, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera, Josh Hawley, they all sort of go out and sort of make it seem like every time there's a controversy, they're raising tons of money. But it's not really clear that that's happening. Um, these organizations that are gleaning money from, uh, you know, sometimes in small donations from, um, you know, Republican uh, donors, a lot of the time they're keeping most of the money and the fundraising isn't really real. It's kind of smoke and mirrors. Do you think that we in the media, you wrote a great book, uh, Say It Louder, Tiffany Cross, about the media. Do we need to maybe take a step back before touting the fact that everything crazy they do is causing major fundraising? Because sometimes it's really not true. Yeah, I completely agree, Joy. I mean, this is something where we have a responsibility to peel away uh, the headline and get to the substance of what's happening. And let me just say about this whole Matt Gates thing. Number one, I, every time I get the opportunity to remind people of how you dragged him all across the AM Joy set way back in the day uh, over his stance on the NRA, people should Google it. It's worth a watch. But also, we have to remember that he is being accused of sex trafficking a 17-year-old girl. And so when you're asking for people to contribute to, uh, to your defense for such a heinous crime, it makes you wonder what kind of weird, creepy white guy party is this where they uh, defend accused pedophiles like Roy Moore, where they defend accused wife beaters uh, like some of the speechwriters from the Trump uh, administration and uh, racists like Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's a weird uh, thing happening in the GOP. And honestly, it's been the only Republican party I've known. I think it's just more public now. Well, and let's not forget uh, Trump himself, who still has a case coming at him uh, for alleged uh, sexual assault inside of a department store. Uh, let's talk about Tucker Carlson. I want both of you to get the chance to weigh in on this, because the thing that's happened that the Republican Party has done that I think is sort of helpful is just let's just be open. Um, you have Tucker Carlson, who now has embraced replacement theory. He didn't literally say, you know, Jews will not replace us, which is what the replacement theory folks said in Charlottesville. But he did say you're trying to replace us. He said that very openly on his show. Question to both of you. Ignore it. Deal with it. How do we deal with the fact that this is becoming open? Because Ron Johnson, who is an elected official, also reflected that same idea. Juanita, I think the first response... I think the first response, Joy, is call it out, have advocates call it out and put as much pressure as possible on Fox News to get someone like him off of the air for spreading these lies and disgusting conspiracy theories. And, and he has no place in media. He should not have a megaphone to spread these things. And so I think it's, it's important to call it out and be on the record calling it out and confront it directly. Tiffany? Uh, yeah, I, so I agree with my sister Juanita Tolliver, definitely. But I will say, you know, all three of us on the screen know what it's like when something happens in our community and then all the talking points are where are their fathers and the community has to rally around and teach these kids how to act. Guess what, Mega? That's your problem. You call out these half-witted idiots who want to follow around this guy who lacks an intellect and makes up for it in racism. You all call out his behavior. You all are the ones tuning in. I don't know how to unracist a racist. 
that's a problem for somebody else. And I just really have no interest in engaging those people. I don't have uh, this, this, uh, this, this, this call uh, to, to make people see the light. I'm not trying to educate the uninformed and the willfully ignorant. I'm trying to inform and inspire the uninspired. So I think that's their problem. And I can just care less about that trash channel, that trash man or that trash party. <laughs> Amen. Listen, they said we, we are not going to raise people who've already been raised by somebody that somebody raised them. Uh, Juanita and Tiffany are sticking around because they are clearly all warmed up to play Who Won the Week? And that is next. Stay with us. It's Friday. Thank you, Jesus. We made it, which means it's time to play our favorite game. Who Won the Week? With me are Juanita Tolliver and Tiffany Cross. Juanita Tolliver, who won the week? Our queen, Stacey Abram, won the week for me, right? The way she read Senator John Kennedy for filth at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing this week was everything. And it was the most delicate of reads because what he tried to do in setting her up for a gotcha was completely crass. Like she wouldn't have a numerated list of all the ways the Georgia's voter suppression bill was racist. Like she'd show up as unprepared as he would for a hearing. So I give Stacey Abrams her flowers today and every day. He tucked his dignity at when it was over. He said, let me just take my dignity. <laughs> just go ahead and put this in. <laughs> he took his dignity and had to go home and she stole his, she snatched his soul out of his body. And he was just sitting there like, well, you know, I don't have a soul at this moment, so I'm going to go ahead and throw it back to you, to the chairman. Go ahead and take over. Tiffany Cross, can you beat that? Who won the week? <laughs> I think I can. I think I can. Look, uh, we lost a, a giant in the hip-hop industry. Shock G won the week oh. for me. He was such a, the one who put the satin on your undergarments. He produced oh. for Prince, Dr. Dre, and others. I love this man. He was the one who introduced us to Tupac. Uh, he was the first one to give us uh, Tupac. I still know all the lyrics to the same song. And I just, I, I'm so sorry to see him go. My brother and I were just reminiscing about him earlier before I was on the show and I just uh, Humpty Hump man the Humpty dance is like the soundtrack to my adult or my childhood and uh, teenage years so I feel like my whole college my whole life is like it's, it was so sad I stop what you're doing and I'm about to ruin the image and the sound that you used to I look funny uh, <laughs> y'all making money see I hope you're ready for me oh my god I loved him so much I, I that was a really sad one today so my who won the week is actually Sort of kind of obvious just from what I've been talking about today. I had to say that the Floyd family won the week. Uh, it is so hard to get justice when it comes to police killing any one of us. It never happens, y'all. You know this. I know this. I've been doing this, you know, going back to 2006. I have never seen that extent of a verdict against a police officer for killing anybody black. It never happened. So I had to say that the yeah. Floyd family won the week. God bless them. Wishing them peace. His little daughter, Gianna, there's an interview with her this weekend yes. that's going to air. Beautiful little girl. So God bless them. They won the week. Uh, Juanita Tolliver, Tiffany Cross. Don't forget to watch Tiffany's show, The Cross Connection, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Her guests will include Secretary of Housing and Urban De uh, Development, Marsha Fudge. Auntie Marsha Fudge will be here. Do not miss it. That's the readout. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. 
because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.